I think the first step is to acknowledge that residents' decisions are driven not just by structural and cultural features of their training, but by the realities of practice that they can actually witness or intuit. And I think that we'll talk more about this, but retaining residents in primary care has to go hand in hand with advocating for solutions to make it sustainable and fulfilling as a career. That was the voice of Dr. Sonia Solomon, one of our guests this week. She joins us along with Drs. Krista Chayashadi and John Moriarty to discuss a paper they published in JGEM in 2016 entitled, Why Aren't More Primary Care Residents Going Into Primary Care? A Qualitative Study. They interviewed residents from three primary care internal medicine programs across the country to better understand what factors within primary care training programs may influence the residents' career choices. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu. Click on ROS Podcast along the top to subscribe or find more information about our show. Our guests, Dr. Solomon, Shayachadi, and Moriarty, a link to the paper we're talking about today and an archive of our previous shows. Thanks for listening. Welcome. Why don't we start with everybody just briefly introducing yourselves. I'm Sonia Solomon. I'm a primary care physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and I'm the acting director of one of the two primary care residency programs at the Brigham. Great. And John? So my name is John Moriarty. I'm a general internist, and I am the current program director of the Yale Primary Care Internal Medicine Residency. Wonderful. And Krista? Great. Uh, my name is Krista Shaishadi. I'm a general internist at the University of Pennsylvania. Great. So... I talked a little bit about the paper in the introduction, but I want to start with some figures that you cite in your introduction to the paper. You wrote that about 80% of internal medicine categorical residents have no plan for general internal medicine or primary care, which, you know, is not surprising to me, but also that two-thirds of the primary care residents included in the study don't plan to go on to practice primary care or internal, uh, general internal medicine, which I find shockingly high. Um, can you talk about those figures a little bit more? Maybe maybe Sonia can start? Sure. So these figures come from a large study published in 2012 that assessed the career plans of internal medicine residents. Um, and over 16,000 residents were surveyed nationwide over the course of three years. Um, and as you mentioned, the survey found that 20% of categorical residents, but only 40% of primary care residents endorsed plans for primary care. Um, as recently as the mid to late 1990s, about half of all medicine residents planned careers in, in general medicine. So mm -hmm. this represents um, a real decline in the last 20 years and is obviously um, a major factor in projected workforce shortages. Yeah. Um, I guess in terms of what drives residents towards or away from careers in general medicine, that study did not assess reasons for career choice. Um, there are some studies looking at things like debt burden, projected salaries, and medical school and residency programmatic factors, but there haven't really been robust studies that look holistically at the multiple factors that drive this choice and hence the need for our study. Right. So in your study, which was published in the August 2016 issue of JGEM, you examined programmatic and text contextual factors in primary care training programs that may influence career choices. So can you tell us briefly about how you did the study? Uh, maybe Krista? Yes, yeah, so uh, 
we set out really to interview uh, multiple residents at multiple different uh, training program sites. Uh, we really approached this uh, from a qualitative method approach, uh, which where we were really trying to get inquiry uh, and also get narratives from residents that we were interviewing. And we did come in with it with some theory, uh, really thinking about how people make uh, decisions about careers. And so uh, three of those key things is really kind of thinking about how those individuals made the decisions, um, the people that they interact with, and how that influences their decision, and how the site with which they're training at was making those decisions. And so we crafted questions to really uh, elicit those uh, responses uh, from three different sites. And we were very purposeful about this. We actually had 11 sites, which we uh, had coordinated in advance. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we did is we kind of reached out to each of the sites to get a better understanding of the number of trainees, their structure, uh, the types of hospitals that they train at. And we purposely chose three sites uh, that had a mix of each one of those, really spanning the gamut from uh, community-based to uh, more academic medical centers, uh, to thinking about different outputs of uh, graduation rates uh, of going into primary care, and also thinking about different rotational structures. Um, and ended up uh, getting a very good response from each of the sites, interviewing about a third of uh, the residents, which we really honed in on second and third year residents, because uh, they really had a lot more uh, years or time put in to really understand the structure. And then they've already started that process to really reflect, you know, what does this training really mean to them? Right. Tell us a little bit about the characteristics of the folks who ended up being included in the study. So we uh, ended up with actually a 50-50 split between a second and third years okay. uh, in each of the training sites and really ran the gamut of uh, ages from late 20s up until uh, almost 40 years old, uh, predominantly females. Uh, and we also surveyed them to ask them, you know, when you entered into primary care at the very onset, uh, were you planning a career in primary care? And 62% of them had said yes at that moment. Okay, so you found four main themes that characterized contextual and programmatic, programmatic factors in primary care training environments. So let's go through each one. The first was resident expectations of a career in primary care, which you found to have two kind of sub-themes. One was a fear of burnout after interacting with primary care physicians um, who were practicing. And you pulled out a quote from one of the study participants that reflected this that I thought was really striking. We have a course at a faculty. None of them practice primary care full time. The idea of doing five full days of primary care week not only makes them start to hate their lives just thinking about it, but they don't think it's possible to do that. They're either on board for joining the defeat and going down with the ship or finding some hybrid career where they can do some primary care well. So it was kind of a loaded statement, but I think it says a lot. Tell us more about what you took away from, from the statement. Maybe I'll jump in here. You know, I, I think part of this has to do with a little bit about modeling and thinking about who our residents are interacting with. And, you know, the way the funding stream flows for residency training programs is that the, the resident clinics, the continuity clinics, are often linked um, to hospital base and funding from, the, from Medicare often flows through departments to faculty uh, and those faculty members often um, who are precepting the residents uh, are not full-time primary care providers uh, and have many other roles within the institution. And certainly at our institution, the majority of our preceptors for our residents uh, are clinician educators. Mm -hmm. uh, and the 
most that somebody will actually physically be in the clinic um, is about 60% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, from a modeling perspective, they see uh, this group of people as somebody who are seeing their own patients in a primary care setting and precepting the residents, uh, but also have a lot of other responsibilities as it relates to running training programs, running service, doing scholarship, uh, and that balance is often attractive uh, to the residents and actually attractive to them. And, you know, I am a little bit shocked that somebody actually articulated that the faculty would say, I can't see myself doing full-time primary care. Mm -hmm. Uh, But perhaps that's, you know, why they are acting as clinician educators in in the primary care environment. Um, residents do, uh, you know, certainly in some of the programs, get opportunities to interact with uh, faculty members and primary care providers who do uh, act in a more full-time primary care capacity. But I think in those settings, they too often see challenges of burnout and having to see, you know, four patients, five patients. Uh, you know, cram them into an hour, an hour and a half, and have a lot of do a lot of challenges of throughput, um, which leads to residents, you know, wondering if this is really a right uh, path for them. Sonia or Krista, do you have anything to add to to John's response? Yeah, I mean, I think the this sub theme and that quotation in particular, just really, as John says, highlights the need for diversity in mentorship. And, you know, I, I, too, sort of represent a program that is very academic where, you know, the majority of our graduates go on to part-time primary care careers that they combine with a non-clinical area of expertise. And our core faculty, too, are mostly part-time clinical. But I think we do get residents who come in very passionate about clinical practice and Um, You know, it's really critical for them to have adequate role modeling so as not to dissuade them from that career choice or at least allow them to make an informed choice. Right. The second sub-theme about expectations related to having misplaced expectations about the ideals of primary care and then the reality. So a participant said, I was okay with the fact uh, that making over 100,000 puts me in an average category. But there are other factors as far as life stress and fear of burning out that were more negative. I always thought I would rather work somewhere where I felt like this is idealistic, but you could provide the right care without having to feel overly stressed about are you turning a profit. So tell us what you took away from that. Again, another, I think, pretty loaded and um, but telling statement. Yeah, so this sub-theme really speaks to the tension that residents feel between their ideals and their direct observations and experiences. Um, I think many primary care residents, as this quote highlights, recognize that there are certain sacrifices inherent in choosing primary care, for example, um, a lower salary, Mm -hmm. but they feel ready to accept those sacrifices if they feel like they can stay true to the principles that drew them into primary care. Um, And those are things like having meaningful longitudinal relationships with patients, providing really holistic care across a broad spectrum of illness, um, and in many cases, particularly in our program, um, providing care to vulnerable or marginalized populations. Um, But I think residency is often the first time that trainees sort of see the ways in which those ideals might butt up against some of the realities of practice, things like productivity expectations, documentation burdens, 
inadequate administrative support, the challenges of intervisit care, all of those things. So then they feel this sense of apprehension about whether they can really realize in practice those ideals that drew them to primary care in the first place. And that's sort of why we call this the mismatch theme. Mm. And I think there are many possible solutions to addressing this tension that we can talk about later. But I think the first step is to acknowledge that residents' decisions are driven not just by structural and cultural features of their training, but by the realities of practice that they can actually witness or intuit. Um, And I think that we'll talk more about this, but retaining residents in primary care has to go hand in hand with advocating for solutions to make it sustainable and fulfilling as a career. Right. So a second theme that came out in the interviews was difficulty navigating the boundary between social and medical needs. And this had three sub-themes. So feeling ill-equipped to address social needs of patients and a desire for primary care and behavioral health integration, which I thought was so fascinating and insightful that this came out trainees who really hadn't been practicing for that long. And then uh, third, more resources to address social needs. So tell us more about about these findings. And um, I have to say these ones, it really resonates with me as an attending. So, you know, I think I think it just really extends from what Sonia was really talking about, this uh, kind of mismatched expectation theme. And, and the way I would frame it is really around this idealism. And so I think inherently primary care does draw in folks who feel that they've chosen this career because um, because of a value belief or that this profession or this line of the specialty aligns with their values. Um, and I think when the realities of kind of caring for this patient population really hits home, uh, I think they're faced with this challenge of, well, I don't, I have this value of really wanting to help this population, um, but I'm perhaps handicapped in my ability to address those challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what we really heard from the residents as we were interviewing them. It wasn't so much that they didn't want to do it, they just felt like they wanted to actually do something about it, and they really didn't have the tools necessary to do it, or the health system around them wasn't designed um, in a way to address those needs. And we actually saw this universally across three of the programs uh, that we had uh, focused in on, and you know, they definitely were a mix of the different kind of uh, types of training sites that people were going, um, uh, people trained in. Mm-hmm. John, do you have anything to add? So I think part of the part of the challenge being, you know, the environments that the resident clinics are often faced with working in are understaffed and under-resourced, and often faced with patients with very complex psychosocial needs uh, and dealing with environmental factors such as uh, lack of access to adequate healthy food, uh, adequate green space, transportation, and faced with those challenges, it can be really hard to feel, you know, the issues that you need to address are not just their diabetes care, um, but actually their access to healthy food. Um, And as a resident, that can be really challenging to think about taking on. Um, I also think there is a huge theme, um, which is the, you know, one of the sub-themes in this category is really looking at, you know, the need in this environment to really have adequate behavioral health support. Um, And a lot of training programs, unfortunately, do not have, you know, adequate access in the primary care space uh, for embedded mental health care. Uh, and those are certainly something to think about, sort of aspirational goals that would, would I think, help in these situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I would, you know, I was uh, as John was speaking, I was uh, thinking about an analogy here. And, you know, I think to our colleagues who are oncologists or surgeons, you know, they also have their kind of challenging cases, but their their challenging cases are in the disease itself, right? right. And so they have losses that happen there that are like lives or bad outcomes, uh, but they also have wins that happen, you know, that that kind of like keeps them going or encourages them uh, to be hopeful. And I, and I think what we're seeing, particularly within our group of primary care uh, trainees, is that uh, those wins, and I think this came in through the themes, that they were, they were coming in few and far between. And so there was almost a sense of, of hopelessness that, you know, we, we don't have the tools necessary to get some of those wins to feel like uh, we can have kind of this hopefulness for, for a larger swath of uh, patients that we're taking care of. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah, and I think that's especially true when you care for patients over a relatively short period of time. And so, mm-hmm. you know, residents don't have the kind of long view, the, like the benefit of these long-term relationships where like you actually do often see people get better over time. Um, and But sometimes within this short window and within these very limited or the limited resources that they have accessible to them, as Krista says, those wins are fewer and farther between. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the the quotations in this sub-theme are like beautifully astute and I think really sort of reflect this sense of moral distress of residents feeling like they can't help patients where the Mm -hmm. patients need it most. Um, And I think any like rational being will sort of move away from a space of moral distress (laughs) in order to, you know, to sort of self-preserve. And so, um, it's not surprising that this um, was such a prominent um, theme in our interviews. Yeah. And and I think I think it's interesting just to follow up on that theme, right? So so one you know reaction is to kind of pull away from that care environment. Uh, the other reaction is is you know sometimes a realization that in order to change that care environment, uh, what is involved is more advocacy and policy change. Mm. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, res- when residents are faced with opportunities to think about how to be uh, more effective in the advocacy space or more effective in the health policy space, is that often means differentiating into a general internal medicine fellowship uh, and therefore sort of pulling themselves away, if you will, from the world of primary care to, you know, fix one mm-hmm. of those challenging themes. Mm-hmm. The next thing that came out of the interviews looked at mentorship and perceptions of primary care. So some of the sub-themes that uh, you discuss in the paper are mentors and role models within the program, uh, a supportive peer group, and then institutional perceptions of primary care, or, you know, a lot of people might call this a hidden curriculum. Tell us more about this one. Yeah, so actually, this was an area um, in which a lot of the quotations reflected positive factors that were driving residents' decisions to pursue primary care. Mm-hmm. Um, so many residents described really formative mentoring relationships or preceptors that they deeply admired who helped reinforce their decision to choose that career pathway. Um, and I think, again, this drives home what we've talked about, about the importance of really fostering those mentoring relationships for our trainees. Um, and then similarly, residents described the importance of having a community of like-minded um, individuals in their peer cohort who shared their values and attitudes. Um, and they spoke about feeling a lot of support and sustenance from their peer group and that this further helped them feel 
confident in their career choice. And then in terms of the hidden curriculum, it's interesting because it can cut both ways. Um, The quote that is highlighted in the paper is one where a resident describes how he or she had been told that primary care was a less prestigious career choice by several non-GIM faculty at his or her institution. Mm -hmm. But I think there's also some evidence that visible institutional support for primary care can help bolster trainees' confidence in choosing it as a career or propensity to choose it as a career. Um, This is actually much better studied at the medical school level, where we know that there are certain institutional factors that influence students' propensity to apply into residency, primary care residencies or family medicine. Um, But I don't think it's been well studied at the residency level. And that would definitely be an area for further investigation. So for listeners who are involved in primary care training and education who are listening to us, could you give each of you one recommendation of a generally modifiable factor that that you could recommend to them thinking about changing in their program based on your findings? I think one recommendation and and one recommendation that that we've implemented is that around really identifying a mentor uh, for each individual within the primary care program who's actually practicing full-time primary care. Mm. Uh, so that so that not only do they have, you know, the experience of the academic clinician educator, but also uh, the experience of a person who's actually out there in practice. Uh, and we've just started a similar program at Yale, um, pairing all of the interns uh, in the training program with a community practice partner uh, for the three years of their training, not necessarily somebody that they're going to work with clinically, but somebody that they can meet with regularly to talk about, um, you know, the value of a career in primary care. Absolutely. So are you finding those folks in private practice in the area or in community health centers? Yeah, so actually it's a mix. Um, so we we have looked for, um, we cast a broad net, uh, and we weren't, uh, you know, honestly, weren't sure how many responses we were going to get from the community um, to be interested in this process. And actually, you know, because ideally you would have, you know, one one match for, you know, each intern getting a different uh, community practice partner. And we had a very robust response from uh, members of our two federally qualified health centers uh, and also many, many members who are out uh, in private practice locally uh, in the vicinity of New Haven. Um, and something that they have really enjoyed starting to um, to see because now, you know, the way their practices exist, which is different from the way, you know, a resident's experience was 15 years ago when these community providers would come to the hospital. Mm. Um, now that they barely come to the hospital anymore, they really don't have any interaction oh, um, with the residents in the training program. This is another way to sort of make some of those links. So I think on my end, it really is to really have them kind of experience what it's like to develop these longitudinal relationships. Um, And, you know, I think that's challenging in one sense, right? So I think the challenge here is really uh, you can't predict the patient side of things or you can't really control the patient side of things, Um, you know, whether they show up or whether or not they'll present with some sort of disease. Um, But there are ways, I think, to think about the structures of your education um, and how you structure the outpatient curriculum such that basically uh, they are getting a chance to see the same people over and over again. And, um, you know, I think maybe one simple metric is really that patients can actually identify that 
you know, that resident is my doctor, mm -hmm. you know, um, to be able to kind of really out of, out of a screen of photos say like, you know, that individual is actually my doctor. And I, I think it'd be a great compliment um, if you know, residents could, could feel that and patients could also feel that too. Yeah. Sonia, how about you? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think continuity is so key and um, not just with patients, but also with preceptors and mentors. Um, and I think the like one big emerging theme from a lot of the sub themes that we've talked about is the importance of, um, in addition to really investing in continuity, um, also exposing residents to diverse practice settings and to a diverse cadre of mentors. Um, I think we saw that residents' faith in their ability to do primary care really seems to hinge on positive examples of clinicians who are engaged in fulfilling real world practice. So um, we want to try to give residents as broad a view of the kind of primary care landscape as possible. Okay. And um, just briefly, what may be some of the weaknesses of the study or things that people should consider in interpreting the results? Yeah, I think there were two that are worth highlighting. The first is that um, in the three programs that we selected to conduct the interviews, um, all of the second and third year residents were invited to interview, but only a subset participated in the interviews. And so there may have been some selection bias in who actually um, was interviewed and the, the content that we got from those individuals. Um, and then I think second is that the study was sort of exploratory and qualitative in nature. And so we can't draw any conclusions about um, the relative impact of the various themes that we identified on residents' overall career decision-making. Um, and we would need more studies to know sort of which factors are the most potent drivers in order to make well-informed um, changes to our educational programming. Yeah. yeah. And I think I would add, too, I think one way to for the a person listening to this podcast to really interpret this too is to really ask themselves if these themes actually resonate with their program or their residents. And that may involve them actually sitting down having a conversation with their residents uh, to know if they're also thinking the same thing. Um, and then I think we can start to really say this is a national dialogue or these are national themes that are going on, uh, whether it's done in a formal study or, or not. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Yep. Although I have to say, you know, like I said before, as a practicing attending, so much of what the themes that um, the residents spoke about spoke to me in my daily practice. So I think there is some degree of um, universality there. I guess just have to decide how far to take it. Mm -hmm. As I was reading the paper, it did sound to me like another takeaway from this research is that, you know, we have a willing, smart, motivated, interested workforce of future primary care physicians and these trainees. But you know, we also really have to take responsibility for our own profession and work to make it better for ourselves and for our patients um, because of all of these things that our trainees see in us. So yeah. what are your thoughts about that? So, I mean, I think, I think there definitely needs to be a push, and there certainly is a national conversation about resident wellness uh, and physician wellness in general. Uh, and, you know, obviously part of that wellness is what happens in the workspace. Mm. Uh, and developing models of care um, that, you know, help lessen the burden of the electronic medical record and the paperwork that is often associated with um, taking care of patients uh, is something that is seen as valued 
uh, by residents. And I think if we as institutions can continue to advocate that those changes need to occur, uh, that I think that will help make career paths in primary care more attractive to medical students and residents uh, and just more viable uh, for physicians who are actually in that pathway. Yeah, you know, I think we talked about it a little bit earlier, which is uh, some of these kind of bigger policy challenges that exist um, and to really try to kind of seek those solutions. I do think that if there is a medical perf- uh, specialty that's going to take the helm of it, it will be in this primary care arena uh, to really address these needs that our patients face and to really empower providers on the ground to be able to address social challenges or behavioral health needs uh, in a way that's um, uh, fully invested by uh, those around us and higher up. I'd say also just one kind of philosophical thing is that um, we need to figure out how we can bring positivity back into our everyday work environment mm-hmm. and how we're engaging with other people. Um, I mean, if you just carried out the analogy, if you're just unhappy every day, uh, you know, I think we're, we've talked about there may be reasons for that, uh, but certainly as you are engaging with trainees, it really shouldn't be a surprise that they're not going to choose that profession, you know, both at the medical student level all the way up until the residency level. And so uh, to really kind of have this soul searching to say, like, you know, um, how can what are the things that are positive about my workday and how can I transmit that down to those that are around me, particularly those of a younger generation? Mm. Um, obviously, I, w- I also want people to be genuine. But oh, yeah. Um, yeah. but I think at the end of the day, there is, you know, some sense of being true that there is a balance too, potentially that you are enjoying your job. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, making residents sort of active participants in institutional efforts to improve primary care is also really critical Mm -hmm. um, because I think that, you know, residents have relatively short tenures within the institution. And so sometimes they get sidelined in larger discussions about, um, you know, how to make care better, how to improve the culture. Um, And I think that efforts around quality improvement, efforts around community building, all of those things need to sort of include the trainee so that they feel like they're part of the solution as well. And I do think there's actually one little point worth revisiting, um, which is that as much as I think we should really, you know, intensify our efforts around retaining primary care residents in primary care, um, in that study, that big study we cited at the beginning, Mm -hmm. um, I think it's worth noting that up, you know, up to one in five categorical residents may be considered general medicine, and that's not an insignificant number when you sort of extrapolate that out to the number of trainees nationwide. Um, and so we should not forget to look at um, programmatic factors that can encourage, you know, good mentorship and good, you know, experiential learning for also recruiting categorical residents into the workforce. Absolutely. Okay, Sonia, Krista, and John, thank you so much for joining us. You are welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to Review Assistance, a podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, and click on Our West Podcast along the top to find more information about the show, links to subscribe, and an archive of our previous shows. You can find links to more information about Dr. Solomon, Chayashadi, and Moriarty, and a link to their paper. 
If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. It helps others find the show and share us on social media with your friends and colleagues. We'd love to hear feedback and suggestions. So you can tweet us at ROS Podcast or at HMS Primary Care. Or you can drop me a line at contact at ROSPod.org. Thanks for listening.